We are coming to the end of our series in the Gospel of John, and it's only taken us 21 months to get through, and we divided it up into six series. Now today, as we come to its end, what we have to know is that the Gospel of John is John's masterpiece. And it's his masterpiece that is telling the world who the real Jesus is. And John is writing so that we will know, so that we will say this, if Christianity doesn't sound like the greatest news you have ever heard, then you are misunderstanding something about it. And John is writing all of this to press in on us, to get us to make a decision about what we're going to make of Jesus. Today, we come to the end of the Gospel of John. And as we need to, under, to understand how he ends, we've got to look back to the beginning. We've got to look at, back at the middle. We've got to look at the whole. So here's what John is doing. He ends chapter 20. We're in chapter 21 at the end. He ends chapter 20 saying this. I've told you all of this about Jesus so that you might believe. And then to end chapter 21, he says it's almost the same thing. He says, I'm telling you all of this. But he doesn't say so that you might believe. He says something like this, essentially saying, I'm telling you all this so that you will know that there is no one like Jesus Christ, that he is absolutely matchless. It's as if this is what John is trying to do. John's trying to get you to look at Jesus, just to look into him, to look at him, to take a look and say, who is the real Jesus? So that when you do, you say, oh, I have no choice but to believe. This news is overwhelming me. I am all in. That's what John's trying to get you to do. He's just trying to get you to look at him, to peer into who he is and what he's done. We saw last week that we're like sheep. And we are sheep that are stuck in this forest. And we long for the green pasture lands of paradise. And what John is trying to get us to do is to look up into the hills because our shepherd has come for us and it is the real Jesus and it is him who is our help in the forest. So today, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look up at him, but here's, here's how John gets us to look up at him. First, he says, I am the witness. This is what John says, I'm the witness. Second, to the works of Jesus Christ. Third, and then he says, now look at the wonder of it all. So the word, witness, and wonder. So first, the witness. I don't know if you know this about John, but John on the earth is Jesus's best friend. If Jesus had a best friend, it is most definitely John. So who better for us to look to, to know who the real Jesus is? And then John calls himself to the witness to the real Jesus. So John, he has devoted his entire life so that the world will know who the real Jesus is. And in fact, I don't know if you know this, but John's gospel is probably the most used book of the Bible to help people come to faith. It's one of the first books that is translated into new languages that don't have the Bible because it is the, it, it essentially pulls on you and then pushes you to him and pulls you to him and pushes you to him. So what is he a witness to? What is John witnessing to? To Jesus' works and, and the things he did. Now, listen. 
John is telling us something that Jesus did. He's telling us of his works, not our works, but his work. What John is bringing is news, not advice. He's not telling you how you should live. He's giving you news of someone who has already lived the life you should have lived. Not about, he's, John is not telling you what you have to do. He's telling you what has already been done. He's telling you what Jesus has accomplished for you. Now, every other religion essentially is doing this. Every other religion, look at it, essentially it's doing this. It's saying, you're in the forest and you're longing for the green pasture lands of heaven. And so here's what the, every other religion does is give you a map or it gives you a list of rules to follow or a path to follow out of the forest. But Christianity does not do that. It does not give you advice. It does not give you rules. It does, it does not give you a path. It gives you a person. It gives you a shepherd. It gives you a rescuer who has come for you, a king. Other religions say, it's up to you. Christianity says, look up. Other religions say, jump this wall. Christianity says, get serious. The wall is 100 feet high. How are you going to jump this wall? Religions say, earn your way. Christianity says, it's already been accomplished for you. Buddha's last words were, strive without ceasing. Jesus Christ's last words are, it is finished. He's done it for you. Every other religion puts you in the forest and says, get out. Christianity says, someone has come for you. Okay, so you're saying right now, maybe you're saying, all right, so does that mean someone could just be bad and then they get to the pasture lands of heaven and they've just been bad their whole life and they just come to Jesus and go to the pasture lands of heaven? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And isn't that good news for us? Because come on, I mean, just look, look within you. Like, look at, what you, look, at, look at the things you know you should be doing and you can't seem to do that. I mean, you're bad. But also, listen. So you say, all right, so sinners, pasture lands of heaven, bad people, pasture lands, yes. But listen, here's what happens. When you wrap your mind, when you wrap your heart around this truth, here's what happens. That truth starts to begin to wrap itself around you and that truth begins to change you from the inside out. And then the next thing that starts happening to you is you start living more and more and more like Christ. So you're being changed because of a truth, not to earn something, but because of something that's already been done for you, it's beginning to change you from the inside out. And listen to this. If you're trying to work your way to heaven, here's what happens. You're likely trying to be good to avoid hell. Or some idea that you have. Maybe you're just like, ah, oh, maybe there's a good place, maybe there's a bad place. All right, so I want to avoid the bad place, so I've got to be good to avoid the bad place, right? So that's what you're thinking in your mind. But look, that isn't love of God and love of others at all. That is avoidance of pain. And so if you want to be at a place where there's a bunch of people who are simply trying to avoid pain, then what you have is not a world of love, but a world of cowards. Watch this. You have to be freed 
up. Not to earn heaven. You have to be freed up in order to love God. You have to be freed up not to earn heaven in order for you to actually finally love God. See, the only way for you to love is for you to be loved first. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. So the only way to love is by first being loved, not, but not earning love. So you don't come to him and earn love and then love back. You receive love and then you love. See, we're like orphans. Here's the thing that happens to orphans. Studies will show that orphans have a very hard time loving until they've been adopted and they're starting to receive love and then they begin to love the way they've been loved. Before that, they're just in survival mode. How do I survive? But once they get freed up to not have to worry about their survival and then they start being loved, it's only then that they actually begin to love more and more and more. Can't love until your first love because naturally we don't know how to love. We know how to survive or better put, we love what will help us survive. But it's only, look, only when you are freed up to know that you are cared for, to know that you are loved, to know that everything has been taken care of, it's only then that you are free to begin to love like you were meant to love. You can't give what you don't already have. You need God to love you in order to love others. Try giving someone money if you don't have any money. It doesn't work. You have to receive money first in order to give people money. Same thing is with love. You receive God's love, and then you begin to love others. When, when I first started going to the church where I used to be a pastor, but long before I ever thought I would be a pastor, the first time I walked into church, this church, something very weird was happening. Dudes were hugging each other, like all over the place. Like, what is happening? This is really freaking me out. And then this big guy, taller than me, comes up and he gives me this bear hug and my face is like squeezed into his chest and I'm like, oh man, what is happening right now? Just get me out of here. What is going on here? Here's what was going on. I felt very uncomfortable receiving love this way because it hadn't been done before. And so to hug someone is to embrace them, and so it's a way of showing love. I felt very uncomfortable with that. But over time, I learned that it's not so weird, and now today I'm no longer an awkward hugger. I've learned how to give a proper hug. Now, sometimes if someone comes up and you're like, you don't know if it's a handshake coming in. Girls don't really have this problem, but guys are like, okay, are we doing a handshake? Are we doing like some form of a handshake? And then is there a hug at the end? Are we doing a side hug? I think it's a little bit weird. But ultimately, if I know a hug is coming... I know how to give a good hug. When the world of love that you have to get to is on a map, you can't get there. You can't earn it. You can't find your way there. It has to come and invade you, and it has to come and invade our world. Only love gets you love. So yes, paradise. It is a world of sinners who have found grace. And here's the thing. So you think about a society that's flourishing. 
the more Christianity takes over a society, the more love is found in that society, and then the more that society actually flourishes because someone starts off receiving God's love, and they receive this love from God, and then they start pouring love out to others. And watch what happens. Even if people don't become Christians, they're learning how to love by watching someone else love them, and there's this value system that starts taking place and love starts being lifted up. And imagine what was ha- would happen if more and more people became Christians, were receiving this love from God and then pouring this love out to others. If that happened in all the nook and crannies of a city, a city would be changed by that love. It's be love from God invading the city through the people who have discovered God's love. That's what happens. Heaven is a world of perfect love, but it is only possible through grace, not a map and not a list of rules. You need not advice, but news. You need to know from the witness, John, that someone has come and accomplished everything on your behalf so that you can just say, I'm good, and then you learn how to love. And beyond that, What Christianity is saying is you can't earn heaven. It's a perfect world. And we have imperfections. And if imperfections entered into a perfect world, that world would not be perfect anymore. It would be stained. The stench of sin is upon us. It's even our past sins is upon us. So how could we enter into this place, perfect paradise, when we have this stench of sin from our past sins on us? It'd be like a skunk walking into a perfume shop. It would be a very bad idea. So you can strive for perfection all you want. But what will you do about your past sins? And what will you do about your future sins? See, here's the thing. If there's not a rescuer, we're, our, our eternal destiny is always in jeopardy because here's why. Say we just lived a perfect life up until now. What are you going to do tomorrow? What if your situation changes? See, we are capable of far worse than we realize given the right circumstance. So then it always becomes in jeopardy. And then even let's just take our present lives. Like, I don't know about you, but I have such a hard time living even the way that I feel like I should live. So what about when we say, how should we live the way God is telling us to live? I mean, it just becomes an impossible task. But the witness has come to tell us that a shepherd has come to pull away every single sin that has a grip on us cast it as far as the east is from the west so we can say everything's okay now. You need grace to rescue you from your striving so that you will finally find rest in a shepherd who has come and then begin to love. So John is that witness that has come to give us a witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. So he says, I've come to give a, be a witness to the things that he has done. So what are these things? These things are his work. Well, his works, what are his works? His works are his miracles, but even more specifically. So Jesus comes on the scene and he says who he is, and then he does things, miracles, to prove who he is. Now, let's first deal with this. 
with who he says he is and miracles because one of the biggest pitfalls, one of the biggest reasons that keeps people from faith in Christianity and faith in Christ is who Jesus says he is and the miracles. So let's deal with these. People will often say, Jesus, great moral teacher, probably one of the best, but he would not, I mean, if he knew what was going to happen today, if he knew there was going to be people worshiping him, he would have made all of these clarifications in the past. Listen, that argument doesn't work, and here's why. Because one, Jesus comes on the scene and he says he's the son of God. He says he's the Messiah, which means he's the rescuer of the world. He says he's the king of the world. And he says he's bringing his kingdom. I mean, these are monumental claims. So, if he's just a great moral teacher, he wouldn't say any of those things. A great moral teacher would never claim to be God if they weren't it would be immoral. And here's what else happens. The disciples are worshiping him. Like the disciples literally are worshiping Jesus and he doesn't stop them. If he was a great moral teacher, he would have stopped the disciples from, if he was only a great moral teacher, he would have stopped the disciples from worshiping him, but he lets it happen. So it must mean that he believes he's the son of God. So here's what that means. Either Jesus is a crazy man or he really is the son of, a God, a son of God, but he cannot be simply a moral teacher. He is either far greater or far less. And the other obstacle people have is miracles. So people say, I just can't believe in miracles. And what I'm finding in our area is that in our area, if somebody is not a church person, if they're not a Christian, or if they don't go, if they're not practicing another religion, here's what people typically will think. They're not atheists in our area, primarily. They're agnostic, which means I, believe, I don't know if there's a God, and if there is one, we can't really know for sure. Or a lot of people in our area are deists, which basically means I believe that there's a God, but we can't really know him. We can't have a relationship with him. Essentially, there's a God, and he created the world and just kind of let things play out. And he's watching from a distance, but he's not getting involved with creation. Now, here's what I always say. If there is a God, why can't he get involved with creation? If he is a God, if he is the God, why can he not get involved with creation? He can't if he's God. And as soon as he gets involved with creation, here's what we see. A miracle. That's what a miracle is. Now people say, okay, yeah, but what about science? Listen, a miracle, we can, there's a science behind miracles. We just don't understand it. And by the way, why is John being a witness anyways? Because this is unbelievable. Because the disciples weren't like, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, no big deal, the whole world should believe this. They are giving their lives to witness to this truth that Jesus really has risen from the grave and this is actually true. The, the disciples are saying, look, we can't believe it either. John is saying, I'm his best friend and it seemed like too good to be true, but yet it is true. So I've got to tell everybody about it because I know how unbelievable it sounds. So they go to painstaking, painstaking lengths prove the reliability of all of this. And all of the disciples, by the way, except for John, 
died proclaiming, witnessing to this truth about who Jesus is. Nobody dies for a lie. Then we say, okay, well, what about cults? Cults are dying for, for a lie, right? No. Cults are dying for a hope that they have in the future. The disciples saw something that happened in the past. They saw news. They were witnesses, eyewitnesses to an event that happened. Nobody dies for an event that they say happened that didn't happen, especially 10 in a row. Now, all of Jesus' miracles are essentially this. He's in the forest, right? The world is the forest. He's in the forest, and he's controlling the forest. We don't control the forest, The forest is more glorious than us. You can say the world is more glorious than us, so we can't control the world around us. We have to be manipulated by the world around us. We can't push things around. But he comes in and he can push things around because he's the creator of it all. And that is when a miracle happens. If you believe in God, but say there's not miracles, you just, I want you to understand, you just have a certain view of God that there is one, but he can't get involved with creation. But I want you to know that if that's your view, that is a faith position. You can't prove that. The only way to know for sure about God is by a miracle because it means he's getting involved with creation and revealing himself in some way. So watch what that means. So if you claim that miracles absolutely can't happen, the only way you can know that is by a miracle. If you say, there's no way God can get involved with creation, the only way you can know that is if God got involved with creation and told you, which means your argument just crumbles on himself because he just got involved with creation. You see that? Was that just too confusing? You're not sure. Okay, I'll say it again then. I'll say it again until you get it. If you say, God can't get involved with creation, That is a faith position. You cannot prove it for sure. And if you say, no, I know for sure, then here's what that means. A miracle's happened to reveal that God can't get involved with creation. So then, therefore, the argument crumbles on itself because a miracle has just happened. If you still don't get it, talk to me afterwards or something, okay? So, another thing people will say. I just know God by looking at creation. I can look at creation. We can know God by looking at creation. No, 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 not like the way the Bible's talking about. You can know that there is a God by looking at creation. But you can't know God by looking at creation. That's like saying I can know what a human being is like by studying a clay pot that they made. Human being makes a clay pot. You can study that pot and know that there's a human being, but that doesn't mean you know that human being. That just means there is one. Revelation is required, and any form of revelation is a miracle. Now, John is a witness not just to his miracles, not just to his miracles, but to the grand miracle. His grand work, the miracle of all miracles, the miracle that puts us in wonder of how great he is. So John uses a hyperbole here. Hyperbole means an over-exaggeration. And he's trying to tell us something by doing this. And he says this, of all the things that Jesus has done, there are not enough books in the world The books, the world could not hold the amount of books that it would take to tell of who Jesus is now. He's over-exaggerating, but here's what he's trying to tell us. There's no one like him. He's absolutely matchless. 
No one can compare to him. The world cannot contain his glory and his majesty. The supremacy of Christ goes unequaled. The world can't hold his glory. Death can't hold his glory. Sin can't hold him down. The miracle of all miracles is that God came into creation. But watch what he did. Remained God and became man yet laid his glory aside so that he could die on our behalf in our place. And then in death, he's dead. And then he takes his glory back. So his glory sucks back up into him. And when that happens, he rises up out of the ash heap of death. Why would he do that? Is he showing off? Well, Yeah, I mean, he's showing off how much he loves you because the whole point of it all was to come and rescue you. Because he wants you. He came to deal. Look, we have two big problems. Two of humanity's greatest problems, sin and death, and he came to deal with both of them. Payment for sins was required. I know that makes us go, ugh. Look, Either we pay for our sins and die forever, or he pays for our sins with his life and then breaks through death to bring heaven to us. Then we say, okay, well, why is there a payment required? Who required this payment for sin? He did. Wait, what? His perfection and his holiness. I mean, he He will never give you the world you long for if he is not perfectly holy and just. But then we have a problem because he's perfectly holy and just and we are not. And so he comes to deal with our imperfections by giving his life for us. He was compelled by love to deal with our sin. To meet the justice. Look, 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 look. To meet the justice of himself and absorb the blow on our behalf. So here's what happens. On the cross, all the wrath for the sins of the world, here's what happens. The father pours out his wrath on his son so that we are free from it all. Oh man, that sounds, I mean, that's, he's a mean dad. Jesus didn't do this as a victim. He did this as a hero. And it was the plan before the foundation of the world so that God might hold up both his justice and his love all at the same time. And we say, oh, yeah, but how could the father do that to the son? It broke him. Can you imagine, I mean, he is the perfect father. Can you imagine what it had felt like for him to pour down all the wrath for the sins of the world on his son? Yet it was the plan before the foundation of the world so that he might rescue you. And now we are free from the grip of hell or whatever you want to call it. I mean, just the Bible calls it hell from its grip. Free from it. Because he's done that for you. 
And now we begin in the forest making our way into the green pasture lands of paradise. John is saying, how can all the books of the world contain that? Yet, what we find in the Bible and Scripture is this truth coming into our hearts and then here's what happens. This truth begins to inhabit your heart and then that truth, the words of the page that you're reading in scripture, they begin to dance in the halls of your heart, this good news over and over and over again and it fills you up with joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and love because those words have penetrated your heart and they're dancing. What else is there to you for you to do now but to dance that way? That is how a life is changed. Not out of fear, but out of a love that has penetrated this world. What is keeping us from him? I mean, why wouldn't we all right now just go running to him? What is stopping us from right now from just standing up and dancing? Like, seriously, if this is true, why are we holding back from that? I'm not asking you to start doing that right now. I'm just asking the question. It's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it. Just saying. So this is a, this, well, look, here's the problem we're having. His glory scares us and his love alarms us. And here's why. You think, man, if I could earn my way to God, if I could earn my way to this paradise, then I'm in control. I did it. In a sense, you are avoiding a savior. But if I have a savior and I couldn't do it on my own, here's what happens. His love and his glory are so great that it means, oh my gosh, there's nothing he can't ask of me. He's done everything for me. There's nothing he can't ask of me. He wants my entire being and I have to give it to him and that is terrifying. You say, oh, if I do this, I'm gonna lose control and that's exactly right. But what better place to be than in the arms of a God who loves you more than you love yourself and is more glorious? The, his glory cannot be contained in the world and he has more power than the world can contain. Why would you want to be anywhere else but his arms? Just go to him. And let this truth dance in the halls of your heart and you watch what happens. You start living with more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more gentleness, more self-control. Watch it happen. But you gotta give him yourself. But he's already given you himself. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you that you're a gracious God. We thank you that you have come for us. We thank you that you haven't left us on our own. And God, help us to wrap our minds and our hearts around the truth of this all, the beauty of it all, the glory of it all, the majesty of it all. And God, let us not stand at a distance from this truth, but let us go and wrap our arms around it so this truth might wrap its arms around us.
God, we need you to give us a miracle now and get involved. Reveal yourself. Show us why we should really go all in. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.